0: Hello, I'm Alistair. And I'm Khalid. Welcome to Season 10, Episode 6 of Scene From Above, an informal podcast about the cool things happening in Earth Observation. Check out scenefromabove.org for the podcast archive and show notes, follow the show on Twitter via at EOSeenFrom and using the hashtag SeenFromAbove. In this episode, we talk about EO and digital twins. Okay, let's do the news on the eighteenth of August, twenty twenty-one. First off, R.I.P. Remote Pixel. I'm afraid it was great while it lasted, and thanks very much to Vincent Sarago for what he did with the site. But unfortunately, Remote Pixel is no more. Did you used to check out Remote Pixel when it first sort of came out? I
1: did. Yeah, when it it originally came up, I I got a bit too excited about it, (laughs) but (laughs) rightly so as well, that uh, one place and uh, all of that data. But um, it was a good good resource while it lasted, and I I quite enjoyed it originally, and then I saw... um, branched off into my own development side of things you know yeah but uh it was a good effort
0: yeah definitely i I think i think i said on twitter it's a part of um sort of modern eo history really in that i think quite a lot of people were able to see what cloud computing can do and what web visualization can do in terms of communicating Earth observation data to, to a wider audience.
1: I got so many ideas out of just just software using it and as soon as that platform was available I was like, oh my God, we could do this we could do that we could do this. <laughs> um, no it was it was great it was great.
0: The next thing I've got is that if you're a freelancer or I guess um, a sort of micro business or maybe if you're a bigger business than that, uh, there is a request for proposals um, from the Stack team that's gone out and it's regarding development of its website and also some development around the validator functions that Stack has. So I'll put a link in the show notes and hopefully this podcast will go out in time because it's an end of August (laughs) deadline, I think, for this piece of work, but That's a really great opportunity, I think, to get involved with Stack a bit more if you haven't already.
1: I absolutely love the way Stack is is developing as well. So I think it'll be really nice to see more people getting involved in this.
0: Yeah. And some of the the tools around it, like the Validator, are really handy. Just having that QA aspect is is Hmm. something that doesn't necessarily get thought about when people are developing software. But obviously, a lot of thought has gone into the, the wider ecosystem of Stack. And then the last bit of news that I have is that the Landsat 9 launch, which is nearly upon us, I think I saw somewhere, Mm -hmm. it's a month away, I really ought to know Mm -hmm. the date, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's going to be one of the the big launches, Um, but NASA have released an interactive website called Landsat 9, continuing 50 years of eyes on our changing planet. It's really nice, I've got to say. Loads of really snazzy imagery, lots of information about why the Landsat program is important and the types of data that it's collected and types of uses Mm. that the data have been put to. I did find it tax my old laptop a little bit, scrolling up and down. But yeah, it's a a really nice addition, I think, to the information around Landsat. And obviously, we all have our fingers crossed for a successful Landsat 9 launch.
1: Landsat's been such a beautiful beautiful tool all all around and i think it's really nice to see the the new one going up as well and then they are also keeping it consistent as well to landsat 8 i think so um there's going to be a lot of opportunity for for soft you know
0: looking back and forward at the same time and that's it for the news Okay, on to the topic. So today we are discussing Earth observation and digital twins, a nice small topic there. But first, I think what we need to do is try and understand what we're actually going to be talking about. So I want to talk about both planetary models and digital twins. And in my world, those are very similar, but I'm guessing there are <laughs> fairly substantial differences. So my understanding is that a digital twin is a small scale but spatially correct integrated representation of reality that users can interact with in real time. And that planetary models are complex interacting groups of global models that try to replicate all of Earth's processes. I think I'm probably wrong. These might be the same (laughs) things, uh, just at different scales. Uh, Khalid,
1: can you help? (laughs) Uh, I I mean, um, so would a digital twin of an Earth be a planetary model?
0: Maybe so. I thought a digital twin was sort of if I had, um, I don't know, let's say of my house, right? So, a digital mm. twin of my house is CAD and BIM, and maybe some updated uh, Earth observation mm. aerial photography. But basically, I can go and poke that digital representation of my house. But if you're going to go to the planetary scale. It's so ridiculously complex and massive oh, and everything else that you can't have that fine scale. So you're going to have to generalize things.
1: Sure. Sure. No, I think um, you're right about the planetary models. I think they are extremely complex. They tend to be global, as you said, that's a planetary scale, and they're very difficult to understand. Hence, we end up generalizing them um, historically. Yeah. We've done that because we've never had the compute power or possibly data to be able to to sort of look into it. However, digital twin on the other side is, 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 a, is a more generic term than the planetary models. I think we understand probably planetary models yeah. um, better than <laughs> we do digital twins. Digital twin, in my mind, um, it's, again, it's a very old definition. It's just, It's been there for a few decades. I mean, uh, right. the whole concept okay. of it. NASA, I mean, originally in the 70s, they created digital twins for their aircraft for for them to go up. But um, it's, it's basically a digital replica. There's few parts to that digital twin. One of them is a physical sort of asset itself that's sitting somewhere and you need to either visually or accurately represent that into a digital world so the computers could understand it, right? So it's basically a snapshot of that physical asset. That's your spatial data, really then comes the life of that digital twin. And it's pretty much your digital replica and your physical asset. There needs to be a a live two-way link between them so they could actually talk to each other. So digital twin always is representing the physical asset structure in that moment in time. If it's not that, then it's not really a digital twin, it's just a fancy model of, of your physical site. So digital twins are, are, are true replica sets, lifelike replica sets, and they're alive at the same time with all the data coming in real time. And that's very important because that real-time data is most of the time ignored or or software looked, looked out of, so uh, without that real-time representation, a digital twin is, in my mind, just a model.
0: Okay, so that's a really interesting point. So one of my questions was going to be like, Mm. um, how can Earth observation data feed into these types of systems? But if you're saying that there needs to be that real time update, if we thought, I'm trying to think of uh, an example that Mm. might be reasonably realistic, but also sort of relevant to what we're talking about. So let's say uh, we were looking at a park. Like Regents Park in London. I say we're looking at Regents Park. And we've flown it with LIDAR and we've oh. built this what we think is a digital twin. If we were to then capture information from satellites on say chlorophyll that's in the leaves of the vegetation, and we then attach that information spatially to the digital twin that we've got, yeah. That is basically what we're looking for. That representation throughout the year, as new data comes in, it gets fed into yeah. the model so that you go, okay. This is what Regent's Park is, yeah. but it's digital. And in fact, in some respects, it's better data because going around trying to measure chlorophyll in Regent's Park is going to be really hard and sort of physically yeah. in re-
1: real world. So I think you you, you got to of close to it. But then I would I would argue that how real time is that real time? You know, <laughs> the, the whole argument of space balls, that is this now, now, or is it now, now, now? We, when we talk about digital twins, we, we start talking about technology too quickly and what sort of technology or data that we need. I think we need to look at the problems first that the digital twin needs to solve. That's that's for me, is the key. If monitoring chlorophyll in Regent's Park is the key problem that we need to look at, then we can self-identify that and break down that problem into how often we need to monitor the change of chlorophyll um, okay. and if it's at a minute and second level then satellite data is probably not going to do it right yeah. uh, then you you need to go and find a slightly different solution to represent that real time quote unquote but if you're looking for a monthly or a daily update on sort of the vegetation of africa then in that sort of a sense that observation is is good enough
0: yeah, so that leads me on, you know, are all different Earth observation data types of use? But I guess it depends on the problem. If the problem warrants hyperspectral every 16 days or something, then if that data exists, then yes, it can be used. But if the problem actually requires something that's, I don't know, five meter re- spatial resolution, then MODIS isn't really going <laughs> to sort of no. do the right thing. So. No, no.
1: We've tried doing these things, right? So all of the the satellite data archives are sitting there all over the world from all those different satellites, either open or proprietary. Mm. They are somehow that digital replica over time of of the Earth's surface, right? But they tend to become just data catalogs, right? Don't don't really get used. (laughs) Um, Visually, we love them. Um, Analytically, we try to find a problem and then try to solve it in my academic time we always used to get the data first i could get the data <laughs> we'll look, we'll find the project later <laughs> but in the real world it's the other way around if you don't have a problem to solve you can build technologies around catalogs and data stores but eventually the lifespan goes off we need to now take that next step to really get some value out of them
0: building on that then Let's assume that we have some form of simple digital twin that requires Earth observation data coming in. Is it sort of common practice that historic data will be added in to that twin as well as data that's continually coming in in real time? Or is it only the forward-looking aspect that is of interest really to the majority of use cases?
1: That's a, that's a very, very good question. I mean, I've, I've thought about this quite a lot of time because um, historic data... Um, uh, I mean, we always have limitations to how much data we can store, right? Um, so yes, is the the simple answer to your to your question. Yes, we need the historic data to actually look at the true workflows and understand, or make computers and really understand what's been happening within that digital twin, right? So data is not the only thing; it's just the understanding of the workflows and the semantics and the context. That makes it really... I mean, I think we were going into that planetary <laughs> models now because it becomes complex, but that's what it is. So historic data is very important. However, I really think with the advent of modern machine learning and AI, this historic data will just be, just be used as ingredient to create models. And those models will then have all of the knowledge that was in the historic data. And then we could just carry on using those models. So we will turn data into models. And those models will have the understanding and the patterns are all we need from the historic data. And those models are much easier to manage relatively uh, than huge stores of, of, of past data sets. Uh, otherwise, we will we'll keep on sort of using raw ingredients to create new products. And then we will, uh, growth
0: won't be as, as quick. Yeah. I guess the next question is if we've got the data in there and we've, I I, I love the way I'm just skipping over this, we've built our twin as if like that's the simple (laughs) thing. Um, But how do we actually get people to interact with a digital twin in a way that's useful? Uh, to them and to maybe getting feedback into models that will then recalibrate, et cetera, et cetera? Right. I think the
1: most difficult part of it is is getting human involvement into it. I think the easier is to actually get rid of the human involvement, right? Let models do everything. Let models understand the processes and predictions and automation. Um, but as soon as you get humans involved, then then you've got to have... Um, two different type of understanding. So one thing is that the algorithm needs to understand the data, but then the the outputs and the algorithms need to also make sure they communicate it to the humans that will eventually use it appropriately, right? So um, it, it added complexity to it. So yes, how are we going to do it? I'm not. I, I don't know. There are look, there are quite a lot of processes already out there. We we have seen in the past decade or so that crowdsource data, it's getting popular, it's it's useful, right? Yeah. It's human involvement. So we have to give them incentives, whatever the stakeholders might be. Give show them value, cost, saving time, you know, <laughs> you know the, all yeah, the commercial yeah, yeah. side yeah. of things. As soon as you do that, you will get the people involved. And I also know that people will then have the validation loop in there as well, that if the algorithms are making something or making decisions that are not appropriate, you can allow the humans to actually come in and say, That's not what I wanted. Another thing that I would like to add here, where the human specialty actually gets involved, is that in the geospatial world, for a very long period of time, we ignored the temporal aspect, right? Mm -hmm. So we were just scared of it. You know, take a snapshot, (laughs) process it, and then publish. Now we started to look at the temporal aspects. You know, we we're not scared of it because of the computer and everything. One thing we're still ignoring is the language aspect of it. So... The geospatial and the semantics, natural language, they're not coming together fast enough because we're again talking, I think I'm gonna go very philosophical here, but we're, we're, we're talking geospatial, right? There is another thing in, in, in geography that is taught called the, the sense of place. Algorithms cannot make a sense of place at the moment. Humans do. That's the first thing we actually look at. We, we look at geospatial data. We are in a physical environment. We're actually making sense of what the, what the context really is. Algorithms can't do that. And if they can't do that, then humans and algorithms are not really thinking at the same level, which means that the communication of results back and forth and the validation loop is going to be slightly tricky. So we need to crack that natural language processing as well between the two. Wow.
0: Cool. Cool. Do you think, then, that maybe... So this this is me segueing away from Mm -hmm. (laughs) philosophy. (laughs) uh, Do you think that maybe the uh, sort of smart city revolution that people say is coming will be the impetus to really sort of push that forward? So, for instance... A lot of the people at the moment who are getting involved with smart energy stuff are quite techie Mm -hmm. and geeky. They want the numbers. They want to sit down and Mm -hmm. and export whatever the number is about their solar panel generation and put it into an Excel spreadsheet and and work out things. I must admit, I would really love a digital twin of where I'm living. I, I would love to be able to have information about the connection of my Wi-Fi, about the amount of water in my hot water tank, about whether my car's charging, about what the last time was I I mowed the grass, all that information Mm. would be awesome to have a a little digital model of my house. And it just sent me messages about things I needed to do and deal with, or updates that needed to happen, etc. And I don't really have that. And I don't, to be honest, I don't see that happening in my lifetime. But it would be so cool to be able to have that
1: oh, come on, Alistair, it would definitely happen in your lifetime.
0: I mean, that's... A, yeah, but, but personal uh, to me, my house, yes. with Earth observation hmm. data feeding in over the top and stuff, and I I can see how it might happen at a planning level, and I can see how it might happen, uh, certainly happen at a regional level or with infrastructure or with something like that, where there's a, a tangible benefit. But I think... it. it well, it would be awesome, don't you think? It would be awesome to, to be able to run Absolutely. your house with a digital twin and and keep a log of things, really petty, small yeah. things like when you mowed the lawn and when you put the bins hmm. out and all that rubbish. But <laughs> I, I just think that would be quite cool. I, I think so as well. But
1: what sort of value would you
0: extract from that
1: digital twin? Just knowing that when things were done? Yeah.
0: Yeah, I I don't <laughs> know. I think that's the... I think that is the problem is that at the moment, it's a lot of hmm. geeks basically who are going, like, yes. we need this stuff. Uh,
1: I, and... I would love
0: it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, very... I would absolutely love it. But, but eventually I, I think uh, there has to be a commercialization of a product. Uh, otherwise yeah. it just does not sort of come out properly maturely. So the people will, will need that value. And I'll give you a, a slight example of, of the geek versus a normal user that, I mean, I've got an EV and then uh, the amount of technology that it's in my car when I'm driving, uh, I want all that data, you know, I want to know, I even want to know, oh my God, that they're using this particular algorithm to spot this and spot that, and then sort of lane corrections and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, the accident avoidance. I'm going all data algorithm. My wife was driving the other day. She tried to go over a cardboard box in the middle of the road and the car actually just stopped. Said, I'm not going. There's an object oh, in the okay. road. Yeah, yeah. Right. And my, my, my wife's going, you know, just stop without telling me it was going to stop. <laughs> yeah. And I asked a question I said, look, uh, if it had told you, would you be OK? And um, why it stopped? And she said, yeah, at least I know. Right. Yeah. So again, there's a use for a normal sort of a user of the car that the technology needs to provide value. In that case, safety she said oh, it was only a cardboard box but i was saying well you don't know what's inside it right so it is is value that once we start to extract those digital twin and data value uh, for a normal general consumer you will start to see that technology so for going forward if that digital twin can save you a lot of money on your bills and can optimize so if, you know um, some of your your heating or your processes within your household then that technology will get sold very very quickly and then it will become mature the technology is there we just need to start providing people more value from it rather than buzzwords
0: (laughs) i've been thinking about the idea of talking about digital twins for a while but not really known how to get into it and then i heard a different podcast basically it was it's a podcast called digital twin fan club guess what they talk okay. about and uh, but it was it was really fascinating the one i the episode i heard was about uh, city digital twins and it was an example from new zealand and that got me thinking that if you if you were a city planner and you have the infrastructure and the support to build a digital twin of one city then i guess there's nothing stopping you uh, apart from maybe sort of something political or, or some funding mm-hmm. from building a a different city or town that's next to it. So you can see how these cities would start to build out. Now, we know from Earth Observation and Geospatial that data standards are a a really important Mm -hmm. thing to be able to make sure that you're comparing like with like. I admit that I am not a digital twin specialist, and I haven't probably done enough research around this, but I'm guessing there's going to have to be an entire new Sort of standards ecosystem that gets built up around this? Um,
1: yes, yeah, standards are important. In fact, in, in the whole sort of theoretical knowledge around digital twin, there is actually the term that defines these standards. It is called the digital thread. Um, yeah. And that digital thread is pretty much information and knowledge traveling from one ecosystem of digital twins to another and to another and to another. Otherwise, those digital twins become silos. That whole standardization pipeline or additional thread would be essential if we wanted to connect these cities together.
0: I guess for for me, it's one of those things, a bit like the energy transition, where I can see where we can get to and we can get there relatively quickly. And it will be amazing. But I'm really frustrated that we can't get there right now. What's the next thing to really get over the hurdle and get this sort of up and running almost as a thing that people just do?
1: Sensors, they'll come. Um, in their own time, then we'll have so much data that we will we'll rely on 5G connectivity for the real. So this whole thing will blow out in, in, in their own time. But I think the way we will actually sort of really can progress this technology forward is to start showing people, I mean, I'll keep going back to the value, but, but imagine you, 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 we talk about these small little interconnected systems. Take London as an example. We've got so many boroughs in there, and there's so many, so disparate in their processes. And they've got these borderlines of boroughs, right? So one borough is, is recycling in a completely different way, while the neighboring borough is doing a completely different process. I don't really know where that recycling ends up, but why can't we have these standards and processes? So well-defined, suddenly London in itself will become a much optimized city if all these boroughs start to follow these digital twin workflows. So yes, that digital transformation will need to come.
0: I guess as well, the whole thing could be pushed forward by things that we don't necessarily see coming. So For instance, the iPhone now, I mean, I don't own an iPhone, but I believe it has a LiDAR attached to it, or the the new one does, Mm -hmm. so you can start to capture things in 3D, and I I get that it's quite small scale and and sort of local, but that starts to generate models that can be, Mm -hmm. I, I guess, at some point, it'll become better and better, and the data can be moved around wherever. And then you and I both use Strava, so Strava has a massive database of where people actually go. So again, if they wanted to get involved in this active tr- transport type of change. And then I was thinking what, when you were talking about London, we've got um, Transport for London as well, and they're digitising everything, they must know where all their mm-hmm. trains and buses, etc. are. So it actually some of these other organizations might be the ones that kickstart some of the wider sort of uptake of digital twins.
1: So Strava and TfL, they do work together. And this is a type of software partnerships that needs to be, there needs to be more of it. I mean, you know, Uber is another example. Please open your data up. (laughs) I know it's your commercial asset, but share that. So look, sensors, yes, all over the place. But that's just data, right? Um, we really need to start turning that data into some sort of a value for, for eventual consumers. I'll talk very briefly about the whole concept of mirror world and, okay. and, and the Gemini principles around it. I mean, I think it's, it's the whole concept really comes from the digital twin, but mirror world is even bigger. Mirror world is a concept only came out a few years ago, but that actually replicates. Everything, your physical, your your semantics, your context, your processes, your workflows, your organizations, everything is a replica. And that's where you start to really see the cause and effect of your digital and the physical asset. And you can actually move back and forth. It's a two-way communication. Imagine if you can emulate as well. So you do something in the digital world to control the physical world, or eventually algorithms within the digital world are controlling your traffic. And predicting your accidents and your lane managements. And we're getting smart yeah. towards smart motorways. We're putting the infrastructure in, but we still need that conceptual sort of a high-level uh, thing coming. And that's where I think the Center for Digital Built Britain is, is working towards the Britain's digital twin in itself. Yeah. And then they, they've they created these Gemini principles a few years ago, and they talk very clearly about that it's not going to be just one humongous suffer so intelligent solo digital twin of Britain. It's going to be small little systems, conglomerates, um, and then they will become systems of systems and systems, eventually start to talk to each other.
0: Uh, here I am, <laughs> espousing the fact that I really want a digital twin, but at the same time, I'm the sort of person who tries to block Google at every chance I have. And it's like the two things don't really marry up. I need to be confident, I, I guess, that my data is going to be anonymized or is going to be used in such a way that is just for my benefit. But then again, really, what you want to be able to do is use it for the benefit of everybody, but in a way that isn't benefiting some corporation, I guess.
1: The the thing is that uh, we we can. It's okay to think on an individual level at this particular stage because if you give out your data on an individual level, it becomes a collaboration of individuals to actually see uh, how a city is performing. Right, So you have to start at individual level. You you also mentioned the word confidence. I think that's key to any type of digital transformation that once you're sharing your data, either it's an organization or individual, they need to be able to trust the system that that data is going to be safe.
0: Cool. Khalid, thanks very much for that discussion. I feel like I've learned an absolute load. There's a whole host of things that I wanted to get onto, but I don't think we've really got time, and they'll they'll just take the conversation off in different directions. But I'll I'll try and put the links in the show notes. But things around something called the Earth Archive, which looks really interesting. Obviously, Mm. we've got Microsoft's uh, planetary computer, Google Earth as well. And the EU are getting involved with something called Destination Earth. So if you're interested in some of these larger planetary scale stuff, that's where mm. you can look for the links. I'll also put links in the show notes about some of the smart city stuff that we've been discussing. We encourage you to drop us a line through Twitter using at where you can find a vibrant community based around the podcast. Thanks for listening. And that's it for now. Thanks, Khaled.
1: Thanks, everyone. path <laughs> is not an easy one to walk through, so take me with you. You don't have to go alone, the life is growing. Could ask you to pick up.